Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. I'm here this week with Sharissa Fong-Tarosian, North New South Wales Conference Evangelist. Thank you for joining me this week, Sharissa. Uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good, to, it's good to have you on the podcast. We're going to talk today about what is called the Elijah message. A lot of Adventists talk about the Elijah message and the importance of the Elijah message. And so I thought, hey, let's take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and have a brief conversation about what people mean when they talk about Adventism being the Elijah message for this time in Earth's history. And let's see if we can glean, see if, number one, if it's biblical, if it's if there's any sense in saying that, like in saying that the Seventh-day Adventist church movement is to serve a purpose that's similar to the purpose that was served by the ancient prophet Elijah, the prophet that God had sent to the Israelite nation in the days of great apostasy, great departure from God and the truths of his word. You know, Sharissa, you and I, we talked briefly beforehand about what the Elijah message is, but what is your understanding, your basic understanding of what people mean, what certain Adventists mean when they talk about this Elijah message thing? So I think we gain a great understanding of what it means by just reminding ourselves of who Elijah was as a prophet. We go back to the book of 1 Kings, and that's where he really steps into the stage of Bible history, 1 Kings chapter 17, and then he's there for the next couple of chapters. But he steps onto the stage of Bible history at a time, as you said, of great apostasy, a time when Ahab, King Ahab, had married a Jezebel, whose dad was the high priest of Baalism and king of the Sidonians. It was a very dark time in Israel. They were worshiping Baal, the sun god, also the fertility god, all, all over the place. It was a terrible time. But when Elijah steps onto the stage of Bible history, it's interesting. He speaks and acts and moves as taking God's word for everything because it says the word of the Lord came to him and everything he does to point people back to God's word, to uplift God's truth. And so I see Elijah as someone who steps into a time of great apostasy, but he's stepping in and being faithful to God and uplifting his truth. This is to some an obvious question, but what does the word apostasy mean? A departure from truth, a deliberate okay. departure from truth. Someone described it to me at one point as a divorce. Mm -hmm. So a time where people who had previously had a connection with God were experiencing like a divorce-like situation where they were no longer being loyal to or faithful to and his covenant. That's right, because God had made a covenant with the Israelite nation and they're his people and he's their God and they have a very intimate relationship that's compared to that of a marriage. And then one party in that marriage are being unfaithful. They're prostituting themselves and they're worshiping false ideas of God. They're incorporating false worship systems into their worship system. Mm -hmm. They're coveting the ways of the surrounding nations. So just this kind of general departure from their commitment to God. I like that. And I think when I think about that, just putting myself in Elijah's shoes for a minute, that would have been a very difficult thing to do, to come and speak to people who have departed from God and faithfulness to him in, in such a major way at that mm -hmm. time. I guess it's not an easy thing to be an Elijah. But, yeah, uh, like he, he was someone who wasn't afraid to stand alone. He, he had times where he got overwhelmed by his feelings of aloneness. That's how the biblical story you know, communicates Elijah. He wasn't more than human. He was a normal human being. 
but, but by and large, when you study the, the ancient texts and record his story, he stands up and he stands up for the most part alone. That to me is exceptional. And it speaks a lot about his level of commitment to God, right? Yes, absolutely. It's one thing to be bold and brave when you're in a crowd that all that agrees with you. But when you're standing up against the legislature, when you're standing up against the king who has godlike powers as he sits upon the throne, as you're standing up against his queen, you mentioned is a pagan priestess. She's like legislating false worship in, in the nation of God. And, uh, and there's she was like, supporting a whole system of false prophets. Yeah, there's 850. Like, there's she hundreds found Hundreds of false prophets. There's this, the nation has been taken captive. It's like a communist takeover. Like it's just done. Yeah. And the man of conscience comes who throws caution to the wind, who exercises self-abandon. And he just, he enters into the biblical historical picture as just this guy who's totally committed to yeah. God and to whatever God says and not afraid of anyone. Yeah, and I think given how dark the time was, mm -hmm. Elijah just shines so bright when he does come onto the stage and with this commitment to, to God and this faithfulness and loyalty to him because everything was so disloyal around him. Everyone yeah. was, so he shines very bright. Totally. So what are some, before we move on, I just thought, let's just take a second to consider some practical lessons from Elijah outside of this subject that who Elijah was and what Elijah accomplished is symbolic for what others would accomplish at other periods in biblical history. What what are some practical personal lessons that that people can learn from Elijah? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that I take from this is when I look at the very first verse where he enters Bible story. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. Elijah recognized that above all else, he stood before the living God. He answered to God. He was a man who feared God more than anything or anyone. And that's probably the first lesson that I take from his life. The second one that springs to mind as I'm looking at my Bible here, I highlighted all throughout my Bible in his story, a phrase that's repeated over and over again, except in one part of Elijah's story. And it is this, it says, the word of the Lord came to him. So everything Elijah did and everywhere he went he was going and doing and speaking because the word of the lord came to him and there was that one time in his experience where as you alluded to he got he had a human moment he was a man with a nature like ours and i'm so glad that's part of his stories included in um, first kings chapter 19 when after standing before all the false prophets of baal the king the queen like he got scared and ran for his life because jezebel sent him a, a a nasty email, if you will. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he took off and ran to the wilderness and he wanted to die. But yeah. it was in that wilderness place, that, again, the word of the Lord came to him. Like God was with him and he encouraged him and he strengthened him and he came back and continued to work Dude, for God. I have to interject here because it's interesting because some people look at the story of Elijah and they say, wow, look how brave he was. And then the next moment, look how not brave he was. Look how cowardly he acted. So yeah. at the threat of the queen, he goes into a shell and he runs away and he hides out in a cave and he starts to whine and complain and to just <laughs> gripe to God about his own existence. 
And some people will look at that and say, okay, wow, that's a juxtaposition. That's a real contrast. She must have been but, a scary woman. Yeah, that's right. Maybe it <laughs> indicates, this is a joke here, maybe it indicates Elijah's relationship to women. He's more scared of them than of everything else. But to me, what I see is that people have their limits. And you can, at the end of the day, his strength and his power and his ability to stand bravely against opposition, against all opposition, was because in him was the power of God. Yes. But in himself, in his human nature, he's just a weak man. And whenever he stops depending upon the Lord, he just reverts to being what he would be as a natural human being, scared, afraid, perplexed, confused, and bewildered, and hiding in fear of the forces that are apparently going to engulf him. And I'm sure we've all experienced that to an extent. You're crushing it spiritually, and things are just going your way, and you're deeply connecting with God. And then imperceptibly, something happens and all of a sudden fear comes on you like a flood and you forget the source of your strength. And this happens to all of us. And we reach our limit of faith. Yeah, We reach that limit of faith. And, it, and it's not necessary for us to let go, but we can relate to the fact that Elijah did and that um, God still was there. The word of the Lord still came to him. I think it's Morris Venden. He had a quote about this and he was saying, how often we are just like Elijah, we can brave the storms on a thousand seas and then go and drown in the bathtub. But I'm so glad that this is included because I, I relate to Elijah. <laughs> yeah, you have those it, moments where you just... And fear is irrational, isn't it? Like, it is. And it, it really is a helpful lesson to, I think, all of us. Fear, like it makes no logical sense that he's going to be afraid of Jezebel's threat when he's already seen the fire come down from God and the false prophets of Baal just floundering around and failing yeah. in their attempts to compete with the power of God. They're all executed. They're all killed. Rain starts coming down. He can run faster than horses and chariots. Like at that point, you would suppose there was sufficient evidence that would provide Elijah with strength and courage to know he's the, the victory is won, but God has won the day. But it's at that point when there's more evidence than ever that God's going to win the day that he gets afraid. And it just goes to show that fear is irrational. Yes. And I think this is a huge lesson for the world. When yes. people get you afraid, you just get afraid and you lose hold on facts. You can't, yeah. the facts don't matter to you anymore. You just get scared and you're just acting out of fear. Yes. And maybe this is why in the Bible, the, the most common phrase that comes from heaven to man is fear not. Yeah. And then don't fear. Along those same lines, the last message to the world, the three angels' message, the first angels open his mouth and yeah. fear God. Because as long as Elijah was fearing God, as long as he just had his eyes fixed on God, then yes. he wasn't afraid of, like you said, 850 false prophets, the king of Israel, all the apostasy that was around him. The moment yes. he took his eyes off God, then he was afraid. And it's like you were saying in the very first point, your practical lesson from Elijah's life was, and you quoted the scripture that talked about, before God whom I stand, that's Elijah's testimony. And Ellen White has a statement where she says that Elijah was not afraid to stand before kings because on a regular basis, he knelt before the king of kings. And so how could he personally be intimidated by an earthly king when he saw the king of the universe? Yes. This was his strength and this was his power. And like Revelation 14, it, it does coalesce a bit with Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but afterwards cannot destroy the soul but mm -hmm. fear him rather who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So have regard, have respect for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in doing so, you won't be so fearful of human potentates and human powers. 
Yeah, good stuff. Okay, so moving on. So this, there's an idea, a theological concept out there, primarily in the Adventist church movement, that, that says that this whole narrative, that Elijah's ministry throughout the course of Bible history, it, it's like a type, it's like a symbol of other ministries that would come. And, and where does that idea come from, Sharissa? Is there like a yeah. single text or yes, verse of the Bible that indicates that Elijah did not just have relevance in his time, but that Elijah-like figures would be raised up by God throughout biblical history to do similar work to ancient Yeah. So the verse that comes to my mind is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And here the Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. I should say God is speaking. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. Wow. So. Elijah, this is way after ancient, literal, physical, the person, prophet Elijah. But here the prophet says that Elijah will come again. And so then we go to the Gospels and we see that in the person of John the Baptist, this was fulfilled. And um, just to show you, just to show you what that is, I'm reading here from Matthew chapter 17, and I'll just read verses 11 and 12 and we can talk about it. But here Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever uh, they wished. Likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then in verse 13, the Bible adds, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is another Elijah figure that comes into history. Into history. Okay, so we've got Jesus basically saying in pretty clear terms that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was promised by the Old Testament prophet Malachi. So he was that guy. He was serving the same purpose as Elijah served back in ancient Israel. And so he was turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And and more than that, he was preparing people for the Christ. So he was, so the nation was in a condition that made it virtually impossible for them to receive the Messiah that was about to come. And so God sent a forerunner to go ahead. And Jesus says that that's John the Baptist. Well, the Bible's clear. That's John the Baptist. And Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah, the one that was promised to come before the great and terrible day. Okay. There's another verse. I'll just read it to you. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He will also go before him, speaking of John the Baptist, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Got it. So the New Testament prophets did not see the statement of Malachi to mean that Elijah would be sent back from heaven again in physical form, like the actual person, Elijah, to to do some ministry work before the day of God. The New Testament prophets saw that it was the spirit and power of Elijah that Malachi was really talking about, and yes. that, that would that be manifested in the ministry of John the Baptist. So let's talk about John. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about, about the man. Let's talk about his ministry. He what was some unique. Things, <laughs> yeah, what are some things that stand out to you, Sharissa, to, to John? I remember his diet. Probably one of the first things most kids remember uh-huh. when they hear about him is he ate <laughs> locusts and honey, but he had totally. a simple diet. My wife always points out when we have black beans, because I, I have a couple <laughs> of real crooked teeth in the bottom. We eat black beans all the time in our house. And I come from Florida, so Florida has lots of Caribbean 
Hispanic food. And a part of that is black beans. And, and I always get them in my teeth. He's trying to say there's a big bean. And so I always envision John, like his friends would be like, hey, John, you got a, a locust leg in your, in your teeth. I know that some people dispute that, right? Some people yeah. say that locust can be the bean of a, a, the, the pod carob. of a carob tree. Yeah. With carob beans inside of it. So he may have been a vegetarian I'd like who to ate think carob <laughs> beans and honey rather than, which was kind of, yeah. But either way, locusts were clean food. Yeah. Sanctioned by the word of God to be eaten. So he may he have may eaten have. bugs. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. He had, he also had a simple dress. Yeah. I can't remember the description of it, but I remember that. He dressed like an ancient prophet. He dressed like yes. Elijah. Yeah. A leather belt like Elijah did. Yes. And a coat, a cloak. What was it? It was a... Not a, I want to say fur, but it wasn't fur. Yeah, that's what I'm trying. It was to camel's hair. Yeah, that's the one. He wore a camel's skin and hair that's outfit right. with a leather belt. So he was unique. Not only that, but I remember the incident with King Herod. Yes. And how he had taken his brother Philip's wife, and then the Bible tells us that John the Baptist he preached against it. Like he he told him, you shouldn't have done that. You're living in adultery. So he was upholding, upholding the commandments of God and pointing people to be faithful to God. Yep. In, in Matthew chapter three, it says that John went preaching around Jerusalem and the regions around Judea. And it says all of the people came out to see him. Mm-hmm. There's an Ellen White quote where she says that this was not just like a small grouping of people but that he gained so much influence in Israel that he became more powerful than all of the priests and the princes. And she says his power was so universal that if he would have raised a revolt against Rome, they would have all joined him and they would have believed that he was the Messiah. So we get these images of John the Baptist from modern Christian kind of like movies. That He's out there, there's 50 people, he's a wild man, he's out of control. People are writing him off as, as just like a loon, loony tune. But biblically, and according to the inspired writings of Ellen White, this guy is a serious person and he has serious power. So this is not a small thing that's happening in the country off on the side here. He becomes a central figure in the entire nation. And, and he's preaching the message of repentance. And he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know that John preached more than repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preaching the message of repentance doesn't just mean you run around and say, repent. No. Okay. As you said, he talked to King Herod and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. We know he talked to soldiers and gave them practical counsel about what repentance looked like in their lives. So when the Bible says he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's not giving you his sermon notes. It's just saying, <laughs> repent for the kingdom of, he- of heaven is at hand is a way you could characterize his message. It's like the, the essential message he was preaching. Mm-hmm. It's not saying that was every sermon he preached, right? But when you preach the message, that you need to repent before God, you're inferring that there's that the people are not what they're supposed to be. Yes. That they're I, in a condition that they that's not good. Yeah. And I think part of the power, well, the power behind his message was obviously he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the Bible tells us that. But I also love how he said that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He was yeah, willing right. to restrict, like to pull back and say he was just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Yeah. No, no person, no, but I'm just the voice. And he was pointing mm-hmm. people to Jesus. And, and I think if you're going to preach a message of repentance like that, it has to be to lift up Jesus. That's right. Yeah, it's such a good point. Hey, because he wasn't using ministry to exalt himself. Himself. No. And that was proven by the fact that when his ministry began to decrease in size and scope 
and, and influence, he let it go. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, isn't it? It's easy to be, I've, I've always said this, it's easy to be humble when you have no choice. And a lot of times people who think that they're humble are not That's humble at point. all. They're just accepting the fact that they can't be proud because they have no reason to be proud. But when you have all the power of a nation at your disposal, because your effect on that nation has been so profound and powerful because the power of God is in you, that can disorient your thoughts. That can really make you proud. That could really mess with your head. Ellen White calls it the dizzying heights of success. Mm -hmm. Have you ever stood at the top of a super high cliff, like a canyon or something? Yes. Like it's disorienting, right? Like you feel dizzy. Like I stood at the top of the Black Canyon in Western Colorado once, Mm -hmm. and it's a a straight 2,000 feet down. That would be like 700 meters. Mm-hmm. straight down, a sheer cliff that's 700 meters straight down. And you can stand like on the edge. And when you look, it just, you get dizzy. Like you, you literally, you get terrified because you feel like you're going to fall off because it's just so disorienting how the, the vision, the view is overwhelming. And so Ellen White compares that to what happens to a person when they reach such high levels of success. Mm-hmm. It disorients you, it dizzies your mind. And this guy didn't get swept away by those feelings and perspectives. He just let it go. He yeah. let it all go. That's a big man. Uh, it is. And it's a good um, man. And a very good man. Another thing about it is when Jesus came onto the scene and he was doing things, people, when they heard what Jesus was doing, they actually thought it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So it's another little sign to us of how closely he walked with God. Like people looked at him and they were reminded of God. That's right. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is just make one point and then we'll move on to how this relates to people who live before Jesus comes, who are commissioned to preach the everlasting gospel. Yeah, And we can talk about, for those who know prophecy, and, and those who don't, we can talk a bit about some like textual connections between the last day movement and Elijah and John the Baptist. But yeah. a John the Baptist, as I mentioned, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's not doing that because he's condescending and judgmental. And I believe that if a John the Baptist, like if he was reincarnated, which I shouldn't mm-hmm. even say that word, but if he was, <laughs> if, if he was, yeah, raised from the dead and lived on earth today, I think a lot of people who follow Jesus would think he was a Pharisee. They would say, you judge people, you condemn people. Who do you think you are to point out that there's things wrong with the world? Who are you? You're no better than they. Because was Elijah in his own flesh? less inclined to sin than anyone else? No, like he was a fallen sinner like everyone else. But he was a repentant sinner who was calling others to repent as well, which just simply means that you need to orient yourself in relationship to God and you're not oriented rightly or correctly. And he was calling people out on that and he was calling people out for their sins. And he understood that to the degree that people understood their need of a savior, they would be willing to accept a savior. So people who don't see their need of a savior are not people who are going to accept a savior. It's very simple logic. And so John is not preaching to people to repent because he thinks that he's better than others. He just knows and understands that unless people are brought to conviction, and unless there's an external witness to that internal witness of the spirit that's convicting their hearts, that they're less likely to accept the savior. And he knows that people are going to misunderstand him as an individual and that many people are going to hate him. So he has to make a personal choice. Number one, Am I going to, a couple personal choices. Number one, am I going to, to serve God or man? Number two, is the purpose of my ministry to save people eternally or to get lots of people to like me? Point number three, do I love people more than I love what they think of me? He has to answer all these three questions. And I think we know how he answered those questions. And it testifies 
in his life. Like Absolutely. he loved people more than he loved what they thought of him. He, yeah, all those questions, he, he answered the right way. And I think we've got to do the same. Yeah, I think it, it's the more we're talking about it, the more it's shining in my mind that to fear God is such an important thing. That's the message we need, uh, I need to hear today, to put God first in everything. Yes, absolutely. And to see, it's funny, hey, like you have these moments of realization where you're like, oh yeah, human authority, human power, it's passing. It's nothing. We're, we're all pretending that we're so powerful and so relevant and so important in our legislatures and our holy men and our, we just, we're just so self-important as a race and we lack humility. And we have these moments of realization where we're like eternal truths and eternal values are so much more important. The gospel is so much more important. Let me seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and forget all the rest of this and just let God out as, as he sees fit. We have these moments of realization, but then it, it seems like we're, we're always pulled back to this place where we fear the world. And Jesus makes this statement in John 5 when he's debating with the religious leaders. He says, at the end of the chapter, he says, like, how can you guys honor God? Like, how can you honor God when all you do is run around trying to obtain the honor of men? It's just, he's basically saying, when you fear men, you can't fear God. When you're just striving to honor men, you cannot honor God. And I think this is a real call to all of us to have a personal relationship with Jesus that's a daily one where we're daily spending time in prayer because first prophet, Elijah the prophet, before before whom I stand, the God before whom I stand, he was daily in the presence of God, daily listening to God and in communion with him. John the Baptist, again, mm-hmm. faithful to God. He must increase, I must decrease. It's a daily walk for him. And then mm-hmm. so it is for us today. We we have to put God first day. My husband just performed a funeral for a 97-year-old saint in our church who passed away. She was an amazing Christian lady, but she had written in her Bible, I die daily, Lord. Like It was her prayer, be born again daily, she said. Hey, okay, so to, to get yeah, we need to end of our up. little talk here, is there indication from the Bible that the spirit and power of Elijah that was manifest in John the Baptist's ministry is to be manifest in the people of God before the second coming of Jesus. Yes. And again, we're just remembering what we just read before in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And even before it, it talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord and how there'll be They'll burn up. All they that do wickedly will be as stubble and all of this. This is speaking of the second coming of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we have every reason to believe that before the coming of Christ, that God is going to raise up an Elijah-like movement. And Mm -hmm. in the time of Old Testament Israel, there was a literal Elijah with literal Israel. There was all these literal things. But now, as we are before the coming of Jesus, we now apply all of that spiritually. And we see that those same characteristics, there's a message that has to be carried to the world. It's an Elijah-like message calling people back to worship God, back to faithfulness to him. Same kind of message that Elijah preached. And we also see that the Bible speaks about the enemies of God at the end of time. Just there was the enemies of God in the time of Elijah. There was a king and his wife, and she had all of her false prophets. So at the end of time, they're enemies of God. They're they're a triune enemy. There's a trio there, and uh, they're all. This time, the stage is not just literal, physical, geographical place, but it's the whole world. Do you, Do you think it's fair to say that just from Malachi chapter four, we can know? that before the second coming, the spirit and power of Elijah is to be manifest in God's people. Like just from that text alone. I think it's powerful. 
Is that fair to say? Because I, I don't think I don't think you need anything more than that. Like you, see, the statement in Malachi does not distinguish between the first and second coming, but it's definitely got reference to the second coming because it's talking yes. about judgment and the execution of judgment. Yes. So Jesus says. John manifested that spirit. He was that Elijah promised by Malachi. But the text in Malachi obviously talks not just about the first coming, but the second one. And so it just, it stands to reason then that this Elijah message through the power and spirit of Elijah is going to be manifest before the second coming. Absolutely. And then the more you think about it and be encouraging for our listeners to actually take some time, plot out all the, the characteristics of his story and then all the characteristics that you see in you know, the correlations between John the Baptist and Elijah, and then look at what the Bible says about God's people at the end of time. I'm thinking here too, even about Revelation chapter 18, where it's almost like there's a global Mount Carmel where people yeah. are called to make a decision and God invites it. His people in verse 4 of Revelation 18, come out of her, my people. There's a, an invitation to take a stand and make a choice. And that's what the Elijah message does. It brings people mm. to decision. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So it's a message that, that almost, I don't want to say force is an issue because I don't like the word force, but it brings things to, it's a catalyst. It's the, it's the kind of message that catalyzes yes. a situation so that it makes a decision clear. It brings light to what's happening, what's really going on, and makes people aware of the decision that they're needing to make. And it's because I, I said to you before the podcast that the way that I, I'm a very, I'm the kind of person who, when I read scripture, I'm, I don't lose the forest for the trees. So I'm looking for the essential message that's in a passage. And then I get to the specifics afterwards, right? So it's easier to go from the simple to the complex than it is to go from the complex to the simple. So I'm always looking for what is the basic, simple, underlying message of a passage. So when you look at the story of Elijah, God sends a messenger to people who, who need to make a decision, who are making bad decisions. And he wants to, God gives them a chance through Elijah to make a better decision and to come to a better place. This happens in the ministry of John the Baptist. Like God sends an iconoclastic contrarian to oppose the universal apostasy of Israel to prepare people for the second coming. So you go to Revelation chapter 13, on a global scale, what you've seen throughout history on, nas- on a national scale in various nations at various times. And God has a message, the three angels' messages that are preached by his, the people who, the saints of God who exist in the world at the end of time. And they're essentially doing what John the Baptist did. They're essentially doing, according to that text, what uh, Elijah did. So- That's right. Right there, you don't need the the scripture to explicitly state, this is the Elijah (laughs) message. You just have to look and see what's what's going on in the text. And if what's going on is the exact same thing, then it's the exact same thing. It's the Elijah message. So the three angels' messages are the Elijah message. They are the John the Baptist message for the world at the end of time. And I think we've got a detractor's Anyways, man, I could say so much, but I've noticed that in this podcast, Sarissa, yeah. we've gone from you speaking more to me speaking more, so I'm going to back <laughs> off. Oh, I get excited. We probably, sh- I don't know how much longer you want to yeah, go. We're done, yeah. Oh, we're not, we- I just want to make one last point. And that we'll is- make a few more points if you want. Okay. Well, Maybe a point or two. Just two. So yep. one last, second last point is when we are looking for those 
If you want to find the Elijah of the last days, you need to find those who are preaching the Elijah message, the same message that Elijah preached. And if you study his message in 1 Kings, you'll see it's pretty clear. It's the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. They function and serve the same purpose that Elijah's message did back in ancient Israel. But then, this is a point I thought would be nice for us to finish on. The prophet Elijah, he had prayed in the wilderness that he might die. But God didn't answer his prayer the way he wanted it to be answered. Instead, God took Elijah to heaven without ever seeing death. And I think that's so powerful as we apply it to our time today because God is going to prepare a people through this Elijah message. He's preparing a people to be ready when Jesus comes so they can walk into heaven. Mm. And uh, that's the ultimate purpose of this message. I love that. I love it. Yeah. So just a quick qualification to all the things that we've said. Love is is not love love is not something that humans define. I I don't define what love is. And the Bible says that God is love, but when the Bible says that God is love, the Bible is not saying that I can define God by my view of what love is. It's saying that God himself is the personification of love. And love the principle is a principle established by God because of who God is and because of what you know of because what God is. So I think in the times in which we live, we we really like to emphasize the love of God, which is good and it's fine. But there's a mistake that I see some people making, and and that mistake is that they define God and what the Scripture teaches based on their views of love, rather than defining love by God yes. and how He operates and how He acts in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so some people might say focusing on apocalyptic truths and end time messages is not loving. But who are you to say that? You don't define what love is. Maybe that's not what you prefer, or that's not it's not in accordance with your sensibilities or your sensitivities, but that's fine because you don't define love. You're a well, fallen sinner. Yeah. And so God is love. Right. Love is not God. Your views of love are not to define God. God is not defined by your low, human, shallow views of love. You are to educate yourself about what love is by studying God and his interactions with human beings. And so the three angels' messages so far, and the apocalyptic truths of Revelation so far from being unloving, they are the love of God being expressed, the most loving things you can do. It is true that in Adventism, there are people who like to speculate and who are a bit unstable and unsound in their approach to Scripture and who do handle Scripture in a sloppy fashion, and that are conspiratorial and cloak and dagger and suspicious of everything. Sure, that's there, but whatever. Okay. Like mm-hmm. that being there doesn't mean that that we're not that it's so it's like throw out the baby with the bathwater when we talk about these like heavy apocalyptic end time realities. Yeah. Like Revelation 14 is is the most it's the everlasting gospel to be preached to the world. And this then was the God everlast- I, it was his idea. It was God's idea. And so <laughs> so I just wanna I wanna say that that the devil separates what God does not. And I don't see John the Baptist as this like mean, frenetic, crazy, unstable guy who had some kind of mental condition. No, I see him as a loving, passionate, decent, principled man of God who who rose above the shallow concerns of worldly-minded people, and he told people what they needed to hear, not just what they wanted to hear. Wasn't afraid of cancel culture. No, he was afraid of nothing, not being stigmatized or shamed or embarrassed, or he was a fool for Christ's sake. He was a fool for God's sake. And he defined himself by God and God's word, and that was his strength. And I think we need—I just wanted to say all this because, look, it's very clear 
like when you follow the comparisons between Elijah's ministry and the people of God depicted in Revelation, you see just tons of correlation and connection. And so, yeah, the true believers at the end of time are called to be Elijah's. It doesn't mean that we're all supposed to be as bold and as brazen as he was. We're not all the same personality, but that essential spirit, mm-hmm. that essential level of commitment to God above all else. I think that really summarizes the Elijah message. It's people who, they just love God. They truly believe in God. They fear and they take God their stand and give on glory to him. They, they just give, that's right. They fear God, they give glory to him, not to the beast, not to man-made systems and governments and powers. And we honor the king. We honor the government. We serve our representatives. We love them all. We pray for them all. We respect their position, their responsibilities, their difficulties and challenges, but we do not worship them. Right. We do not fear them. They're fallen human sinners, just like us. And we want to serve and bless them, but we will never let them dictate to us what we will believe and think and feel and how we will worship God and how we will order our lives. And I think that's really the essential spirit of Elijah. And we speak the truth because the truth, I've heard, I heard a statement that says that the truth is hateful to those who hate the truth. And we live in a day and an age where truth is described as hateful. That's fine. Call me hateful all you want, because Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth, truth will set, will you, set free. you free. And so freedom is found in the truth. And Ellen White makes this powerful statement where she says, no joy, no true joy can be found outside of the truth. And so we are truth seekers, we're truth presenters, we're truth proliferators. Anyways, I could go on. Yeah. You want to maybe, you have anything to close with or should we just say, okay, conversation over. Conversation over. I think that was a good place to finish. Okay. Hey guys, thank you so much for, for joining Sharissa and I. And we, we really, our hope is that in conversing with, with, with each other and my hope is that having guests on every week, talking about various subjects that have to do with evangelism and our mission and our message could just inspire you guys to be, to get closer to scripture, to get closer to the God of scripture, to just consider some interesting perspectives and thoughts and, and really just a journey together and really, I don't know, just inspire you to faith. And evangelism and mission. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. We look forward to getting back together with you next week for all things evangelism. Take care.